Welcome to the Failsafe, a podcast about writing and failure. On this episode of the Failsafe, I talk with Roxanne Gay at a live recording at Prairie Lights during the Iowa City Book Festival. Roxanne Gay's writing appears in Best American Mystery Stories, Best American Short Stories, Best Sex Writing, A Public Space, McSweeney's, Tin House, Oxford American, American Short Fiction, Virginia Quarterly Review, and many others. She is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel. She's also the author of the books Aiti and Untamed State, the New York Times best-selling Bad Feminist, and Difficult Women, and most recently, the New York Times best-selling memoir, Hunger. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writer's House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about their creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writer's House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find them online at iowawritershouse.org. Coming up, why does Roxanne love Little House on the Prairie so much? And how did she get Beyonce to wave at her? We unlock these secrets and more next. I'm your host, Rachel Yoder. Hey there, we are back. Are we ever back with this phenomenal conversation with the amazing Roxanne Gay? She did an interview when she was in Iowa City last fall for the Iowa City Book Festival, where she received the Paul Engel Prize awarded by the UNESCO City of Literature. And I just really want quickly want to read the criteria for this prize because I cannot think of a more deserving contemporary writer than Roxanne. So the award honors an individual who represents a pioneering spirit in the world of literature through writing, editing, publishing, or teaching, of which she does all, and whose active participation in the larger issues of the day has contributed to the betterment of the world through the literary arts. I mean, that's Roxanne in a nutshell. So it was really great to be able to talk with her and sort of celebrate on that day with her. We were uh, at Prairie Lights Bookstore in downtown Iowa City. No surprise, it was a packed house. Uh, Roxanne, per usual, was really generous, really funny, really smart, really direct. And we, I just had so much fun talking with her. She's such a charming person. So our conversation really spanned kind of her entire lifetime we talked about how when she started writing the title of her first secret teenage book that will always and forever remain in a drawer Um, we talked about starting to submit and uh, her parents and their role in her success we also talked about what i think is a really interesting sort of period in her life where she was coming out in college and then actually dropped out of college and kind of disappeared. And it's just really interesting to hear, you know, how that figures into her development as a writer. And of course, Beyonce came up because how could Beyonce not come up? So um, 
I love so many things that Roxanne had to say, but probably chief among them, I love that she just really gives writers permission to trust your own process, trust your own writing, to not over revise and not overwrite. You know, there are definitely people who write 17 drafts and that really works for them. But as Roxanne says, if you write fast, then write fast. That's totally okay. And it was just really freeing to hear that from such a successful writer. So there's so much good stuff in this interview. I'm in the middle of reading Hunger right now, and it was really great to revisit revisit this conversation with Roxanne and be reminded of just the very human and very big-hearted voice behind that writing. Um, what a pleasure. So hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So how about um, one thing I, I emailed Roxanne before this and said I sent her my failure list, which is what I send a lot of people who are going to be on the podcast. I'm like, just a list of things we could possibly talk about. Um, and so one of them was uh, winning awards and not winning awards. And so today, tonight, you're going to be honored with this award. Um, and you, when I was talking to you before, you said, let's talk about awards and winning them. Um, so you've seen all of this huge success. Um, why did you want to kind of come at it from awards? Can you usher us into the fail safe? On that topic? Sure. <laughs> I think you always want more. The more successful you become, the higher you raise the bar for yourself. And I, I see so many writers that I really admire and respect that that win a lot of these really amazing awards. And I always feel like I, I'm always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And I just feel like, what do I need to do to be good enough to get these fucking awards? <laughs> uh, it's just, it's maddening. It's just maddening. And oftentimes I lose to the same people. Um, <laughs> and so, like, um, in 2014, I lost every possible thing to Claudia Rankine, which <laughs> I should, obviously. That's, that is... It's a great person to lose. I mean, to, you yeah. know, that's the competition. That's how good writing is right now. So it's just intimidating to to know that you're writing in in this atmosphere and not quite good enough. That's how I see it. Well, that makes me curious about starting out um, as a writer. What did you want to be or what what was your sort of vision of success and your vision of failure, you know, starting out? And how has that vision changed? Obviously, you've just kind of, you know, defined that a little bit. But could you just kind of take us back to the start? You know, when you started this, did you want to... Could you envision like what today looks like for yourself? Is this what you wanted? What were you kind of aiming for, I guess? I didn't have a vision. I mean, I just, I wrote and I continue to write because I love writing. It's that simple. And so my dream was to publish a book. That was the beginning and the end of the dream. I didn't know about the speaking circuit, which is, I think, the best kept secret in the writing world <laughs> for good reason. And, you know, I didn't know about any of the fun things that I was going to be able to do. And so I didn't even know what to dream. I just dreamed I would like my parents to be able to go to Barnes and Noble and see my book. And that dream came true. And so now I have to come up with new dreams for myself. <laughs> uh, I didn't necessarily have a vision of failure because so much of writing and achieving success is failure, you know, submitting and getting rejected. My first blog was called, I have become accustomed to rejection uh, because I wanted to have a blog and I thought, how am I going to write in this regularly? What is something that happens to me all the time? 
And that thing is rejection. And so I had a really good schedule. Whenever a rejection came in, I wrote a new blog post complaining about the rejection. And not even necessarily complaining, but sort of looking at the piece in question and trying to figure out why it was rejected. Was it a question of fit or taste or was the editor just an idiot? Um, And I was very honest about like my feelings about rejection. And then I just said, okay, and here's where I'm sending it next. And so it was a way of just keeping myself accountable to myself. And if other people happen to read my insanity, then that was also welcome. But failure is a constant. I still get rejected for things and I still feel very sad and pouty about it. But I can only now talk about it with my really good friends because if I go on Twitter and I'm like, oh, I just got a rejection. Nobody's going to cry for me at all. So so starting out and now, but maybe even more so starting out, when you got a rejection, you blogged about it, you wrote about it and you sent it out again. Did you have any other things that did you ever revise or were you ever like this isn't going to work um it depends on the number of rejections generally when i got to about 15 rejections 20 rejections that's when i really start to relook at a piece and think what's not working here and if editors gave me feedback i generally take editorial feedback i'd say 97 percent of the time it just depends but i i trust my instincts and i trust what i put on the page and taste is arbitrary and so you are going to be rejected that is a totally natural part of the writing process And so rejection is something I waited. It's not something I rushed into. I think too many writers just overwork their writing. I see it all the time. People are like, I'm working on my 17th draft, and they're really fucking proud of that. And I'm just like, what is wrong? Like, let it, stop touching it. Just (laughs) let it be. Just let it sit for a minute. If you're revising something 17 times, then maybe you just, something else is going on. You're being obsessive. So I just don't over, I try not to over revise. I was just looking at, we, um, actually published a first and final draft of Down to Bone, um, your short story in draft. Um, And I was revisiting that interview. And in it, you said you wrote the story in about six hours and then revised it in about a week and said, you want to strike when the iron is hot. You want to like get in there. You have an idea. You have an impulse. You want to write it down, see it through, which I love because I feel like, you know, there are so many writers who say, Oh, no. I mean, and I I'm one of these writers and like I worked on it for like three years, you know, and there's something really refreshing about having that crispness to the voice and a voice that hasn't been overworked. Have you ever encountered an essay, a story, a book even where that quick writing hasn't worked in the same way that it has um, maybe in general for your for your writing? Not that I can think of. I think that everybody writes at their own pace. There are absolutely writers that take years to work to create something new. And often, most of the time, that work is gorgeous. I'm thinking of Alexander Chi, who took several years to write Queen of the Night, which is one of the most astonishing books I've read this year. And if he needs 20 years to write his next book, by God, let's give him 20 years because (laughs) it's going to come out beautifully and it's going to be astonishing. And then some writers write quickly and... I think that's also legitimate. I think sometimes we look down on writers who write quickly as being short-sighted about their work, but sometimes that's just the way it works. And we also look down on writers who take too long as if, you know, why aren't you putting out a book a year? As if that's the measure. Um, And that isn't the measure. And unfortunately, it becomes the measure. Like, I haven't had to actually, even though I've been on the road, I haven't published a book in three years, two and a half years now. And I actually feel a lot of stress about that. Like, what's wrong? But I haven't been home for more than a week 
like May 2014. You've got a lot going on. <laughs> so I, I have a lot going on. Yeah. It's like, you know, when do you think I'm going to write? I mean, I'm going to go write in my hotel after this, but um, that's where I get my writing done. And so I too have to tell myself it's going to take as long as it's going to take. I actually delayed my next nonfiction book until next summer-ish. Um, <laughs> there, there is a draft of the book and I, the revision is actually almost done. It is going to come out next year. Um but the first draft was okay, and it could have been published, but it wasn't good. And I knew that. And so I just said, you know, Roxanne, you need to take more time. And I told my publisher. And I was fortunate enough that they were able to do that. Plus, I lost two editors, and so they were feeling guilty. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your writing now, because you do have a lot going on. Um, and, I mean, a lot of it involves writing, not necessarily books, right? Um, yeah. So how... Can you talk a little bit about how your writing practice, um, how your writing habits may have changed since you published that book two and a half years ago and, and things have really changed for you? Your life's gotten fuller and busier. Yeah, my practice itself hasn't really changed. I do most of my writing in my head and then mm -hmm. I sit down. So when people say I write fast, it looks fast, but I actually write slow. I am thinking about a story or an essay or a book length project or like I'm writing the screenplay for my novel, which is going to be a movie. And I'm doing that work in my head. When I sit down, I'll probably write it in two weeks, but I've been thinking about it since November of 2015. So, you know, it takes much longer than it seems. And so my process hasn't really changed. The one thing that has changed is that I used to have so much time to just sit and write for 10 hours a day and just have a blast in the summers when I wasn't teaching. And I don't have that time anymore. And so I write more in, in pockets of time. I write a lot on airplanes. And then I have to go back and look at it. Um, I, I'm working on the second issue of World of Wakanda right now. And I wrote it on the plane last night. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> now it was because the guy next to me kept snooping. I was going to say, are people like, what, what are you working on? Typed, are you I'm a writer? Fuck you up. <laughs> <laughs> and then he stopped looking. <laughs> I, I'm, I make friends wherever I go. <laughs> um, so I know that we have some college students here. Uh, and I was wondering about, you know, when you started publishing? Was it in college? Was it after college? I know in Bad Feminist, you mentioned that when you kind of started submitting, and I don't know if you were submitting to lit journals or submitting to online places, both. So when you started submitting, you didn't really feel like you had an entryway into the literary community. Um, and then started submitting some of your work to erotica anthologies and publications and found a place there sort of before you kind of entered into the lit community. And I was just really interested about that experience, how you sort of came into the literary community and the experience of feeling maybe, I don't know if you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but feeling not welcomed at the beginning. Um, it was really surprising for me because when I came in to the sort of indie lit world, you were such an integral part of it. You published one of my very first pieces of writing and you were an HTML giant. I mean, you just seemed like like you were indie lit. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just interested in, in, in that kind of struggle entering into it. Yeah. Um, well, when I was much younger, when I was a teenager, I would get the writer's market, which was a book. And 
every year it came out and it was a print book for you young people. <laughs> and, and it had all the addresses of all the major magazines. And so I would read the description of the magazine and then I would type up, <laughs> so nerdy, that <laughs> I would type up a little cover letter and send out my shitty story and hope for the best. And I, uh, those stories rightly got rejected. So were you sending stuff to like the Iowa Review? No. No. I was sending stuff to the Paris Review and the New Yorker. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Completely delusional. Like, I thought I, w- I thought I was going to be a poet and I sent it to poetry. Of course you did. And Robert Pinsky at Slate. And one of my friends who knew he was like, whoa, maybe you should try some other yeah, places. Like walk before you run. Yeah. 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 I okay. submitted to the Atlantic. I mean, Harper's I, places that still haven't published me. So <laughs> um, again, speaking of failure, <laughs> I don't know what I need to do to get into the New Yorker, but I suppose write a short story lets me a good start. Um, (laughs) You know, it's hard. And so I would just submit to all these unrealistic publications. But I was like, I have a shot because I have a dream. (laughs) I don't even know where that delusion came from. It just was always with me. And um, then when I was 19 or 20, I published an essay in a magazine. My first real publication was an essay in a magazine called Moxie Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I actually still have that print copy. It was a really cute little essay about identity. And I don't know where I fit in. I'm black and white America. And I'm black and Haitian. And Haitian and black America. And anyway, it was all very angsty. All of my writing from like 19 to 29 was just very tragic. <laughs> um, and so I was writing short stories Uh, Because I actually think of myself primarily as a fiction writer. And in my 20s, those stories kept getting rejected from literary magazines. And I got really frustrated. And then one day I stumbled upon a call for submissions for an erotica anthology. And I was like, I have sex in my story. So I just sent it off. And I actually have this whole secret career of like 40 books and an anthology I edited um, in erotica. No, and that's not on your website. Is not it? A, no, it is not. All right. I used to have layers, a website for layers. my alternate persona. Yeah, okay. I did. Um, I, I took that website down. I'm not ashamed of it, but my parents are strict Catholics. And I love my parents. <laughs> and so I, I published all that work under pen names. And I'm and if people say, Did you write this story? I admit it. I'm not ashamed or anything. And if you look on my like Amazon author page, my erotica book is there. Um, it's not a secret. But um I just started submitting to erotica anthologies, which, by the way, pay and $50 a pop, which is way more than most literary magazines pay today. (laughs) And I also just kept writing and becoming better and better. And when I look at those stories now, I know why they were being rejected. But at the time, I developed a very elaborate conspiracy theory about how they were just being racist against Nebraskans. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, it's because I don't live in New York. Uh, you know, I was always looking for reasons outside of, you're just not there yet, my friend. It's okay. You don't have to be there. Um, I got my master's degree in creative writing. I got an MA instead of the MFA because I knew I was always going to go on to get the PhD. Uh, and so my writing improved then. And uh, then I moved to Northern Michigan to get my PhD. And I had so much free time because I was Houghton, Michigan, which is 10 hours north of Detroit. It's so, it's the end of the world. And uh, my friend Matt Siegel was like, I'm going to start a magazine. And I was like, so am I. And (laughs) we decided to do it together. (laughs) And he's so hot. Um, That's an aside. He's married, but he's 6'7". And I'm 6'3". So (laughs) we're obviously meant to be. Um, And so I started blogging for our little magazine. 
And then people started reading that blog. And then uh, HTML giant was like, hey, why don't you come write for us? And, and so it, one thing led to another. And that's how I really found my way into the literary community. And I also, again, started sending my work out. And it was much better this time. And it started to find homes in mainstream. I mean, small publications um, and publications I'm actually still very proud of. And I still list on my website because I think that's some of my best work. My um, short story collection coming out in January, Difficult Women, is a lot of that work from that time. Yeah, I'm really excited about I mean, I'm excited about Hunger, too. But um, it, Roxanne's short stories are really fantastic. I'm a huge fan. They so are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, You're like, keep keep talking about please my wonderful Please do go stories. on. No, there... <laughs> It was just, it, I, um, you know, I think that you never, I don't like to make fun of my old work. I'm not, I mean, I'll make fun of it, but I don't ever like disavow it because that's just the writer I was at that time. And I'm a different writer now, but still, you'll see the similarities. Yeah. Well, and also how fun to come back to short fiction after, you know, like doing a novel and doing the collection of essays. I, I for me these days, like the, the, prospect of writing a piece of short fiction is just like eating candy or oh, something. Oh yeah, it's my you know? favorite thing. Like I always give myself that's the carrot at the end of the stick for me is like, yeah. oh if I write this chapter in hunger, I can write a short story after. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Um so you also mentioned a bad feminist uh coming of age experience where you dropped out of college. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I that, did that little incident and moved to Arizona. And I perked up because I too dropped out of college and moved to Arizona. Good choice. Um, I made it to the last semester before I before I dropped out. Which oh, wow, yeah, it was just like that's spectacular. Stick the knife in and just turn it. Um, and there was also a, a man. There's a man in your story in Arizona. Mm -hmm. There's a man in my story. So I just got really curious about that kind of. Ex blowing up your life um, incident, because I know for me, I was, I guess I was 20 when it happened, going off on my own, cutting ties, having this really, I mean, I considered it a really big failure for a long time. Um, but I see now that it was absolutely essential in me becoming a writer and having the courage to be a writer and having the courage to write the things that I need to write. And I'm wondering if your experience was formative in any way and, you know, you having, you know, coming to this voice that's just so clear and confident um, and strong today. Yeah, it was definitely formative. I was 19 and it was the summer before my junior year of college and I was just feeling a lot of pressure. I totally had a breakdown and um I, I, for a long time, I felt like a failure because I was going to Yale and I left. I was like, yeah, fuck the Ivy League. I'm going to go live with some random 44-year-old guy in Arizona. It seems so, like a so you good idea. were you at Yale when you left or you yeah. were at home? You were at, I was Yale, at Yale and you were just like, I'm leaving. I'm like, peace out. Yeah. I did my summer school and um, because I was trying to graduate early. So mm -hmm. I was just going, going, going. I just wanted to get to the next step of my life. And then I just decided to walk away from it. And nobody in my life ever thought I would do that because I was totally type A and straight A student. And I must be here and I must do well. And I wasn't doing well and I wasn't happy. And I changed my major three times in two years. And I also just had a lot of personal stuff going on. I was coming out and um, it was just 
it was a difficult, difficult time. And uh, I really thought I had made a big mistake. And my parents, who are really great, but were really upset because, and rightly so, I disappeared and didn't tell them where I was going. And I didn't get in touch. They found me with a private investigator. Yeah, I have one regret in life, and it's that, because I know that they went through hell for about eight months looking for me. And um, they were very upset for several years afterwards, even though I was living with them. <laughs> it was just always a treat. <laughs> um, because they were like, look what you've done. But I did go back to school eventually, and then I went all the way. And now they love me. I mean, they loved me then, too, but... <laughs> Now they're like, yeah, that worked out really well for you. And it did. I think I wouldn't be where I am today if I had not taken that time, if I had sort of stayed that robotic type A person. I mean, I'm still a type A person, but if I had stayed that and not sort of looked at myself and dealt with some of what was going on, mm. I wouldn't be here now being able to think about it and talk about it and write about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you brought up your parents because I also um, saw in time that you and your brothers were oh. profiled as yeah. successful siblings. You guys are all incredibly successful. And um, I'm wondering, I'm wondering what, you know, your family life and your parents had to do with that. And I'm also wondering, you know, if when you did drop out of school, I mean, the, the sort of high expectations, which I've read about, I'm wondering too, if that kind of contributed to the, the journey West. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so Time Magazine a few weeks ago did a profile of successful families where the siblings are all successful, but in different fields. And so it was my brothers and I and um, Gina Rodriguez and her sisters and Rahm Emanuel and his brothers and some other families. It was really an interesting article. Mm-hmm. And in it, my parents talk about their parenting strategies, which were to be relentless and to expect excellence at all times. And I called my mom up and I was like, you guys have no fucking regrets at all. And my mom was like, no, not at all. I would do it exactly the same way. So Haitian parents just know they don't regret. They don't apologize. They don't give a fuck. It's fantastic. And so um, this article featured my brothers and I. My brother is CEO of a Fortune 500 company and he's the youngest black CEO in the country. And then my other brother is an engineer. And I am a writer and my parents just raised us with this idea that we had to be excellent and that an A minus was not acceptable. Like we would get in trouble for an A minus. And they gave us homework in addition to the homework, which was so weird. But the, what, the worst part is that we did it. We were like, <laughs> OK, because it was normal. And so it was really intense. But it, I must say it wasn't abusive. They really just love learning. And they also knew what they were going to need to do to raise three black children to survive in this country. And so they wanted to make sure that we were as equipped as possible to be black in America. And so I felt a lot of needing to live up to their expectations through college. Even now, I'm like, oh, great. Now they can see I did this thing. Because when you tell them you want to be a writer, especially Haitian parents, they're like, no, what is that? (laughs) Uh, you're going to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Now that they can see material effects of my work. And like, I took them to Australia with me and they love that. Like they can, they get it now. Now that they've seen people respond to my work, they're super, they're having the best year ever. They are so hype right now. After that time magazine thing. Oh my Lord. You can't tell them shit. They are just so pleased as punch. I mean, I'm going to give props. They deserve every single ounce of credit for where I am today and what I'm doing. 
But yeah, when I was 19, it was a lot because I didn't understand as an adult. Now I understand they were doing it with love. I get the why of it. At 19, I was just like, these parents are really into A's like it's just a grade, man. And, and you know, you're 19. So like, get off my back. It was just it was a lot. But they've totally chilled out now. And they're like, oh, just call. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, this is this is, we hear this question, but do you have any like any books in the drawer that that you've written that just probably won't ever see the light of day? Nope. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> no, I publish everything I write. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, For better or worse. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good, but no, I don't have like a secret novel that will never see the light of day. Well, no, actually I do. I do. It's a secret novel. It's so bad. <laughs> it's something I wrote when I was 16. It's called Walking on Broken Glass. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. I found it the other day and I was like, oh, girl, I just want to hug you. <laughs> and I don't do hugs, but I was just like, oh, oh, Roxanne. It gets better. It gets better. <laughs> so I guess I do have that one. Okay. The, the teenage novel. Yes. Oh, it's, <laughs> don't, there's no adverb I didn't love. <laughs> So what is your biggest struggle these days as a writer and creative person um, and very successful creative person? Well, accepting that I'm successful is very difficult mm -hmm. for me. I don't, I mean, I just feel like, no, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. Um, I think the biggest struggle beyond that is just pressure of what if my next thing isn't good enough? What if my next thing disappoints people or isn't what they expect from me? And what if all of this goes away and I'm still stuck in Lafayette, Indiana? <laughs> which is <laughs> trust me that is a nightmare uh, so I mean it's just the, the pressure of expectation and not wanting to fail especially because I'm trying such new things like the comic is coming out and there's all this press about the first black woman mm -hmm. and that's great but it's also pathetic it's 2016 how on earth am I the first black woman to lead a goddamn comic at Marvel at Marvel these people have millions and millions of dollars they just basically have a bank that they have built with their movie cinematic, with their cinematic efforts. And now this is the first time, and they didn't even know I was the first black woman. My editor was like, yeah, when I saw the New York Times article, I was like, huh. Hmm. And he, he's a good guy, great guy, actually. But still, um, but there's a lot of pressure with that. Yeah. Because if I fuck it up, does that mean no other black women will be able to do this? Um, all too often, marginalized people who are the first have to get it right. You have to be perfect. Otherwise, people say it's because you're black that you failed, not because sometimes you fail. Um, and that's a huge burden. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you meet that pressure and and um, these burdens? I mean, is, do you just meet it with saying yes to opportunities and work? I mean, is that like. Yeah, I, I work too much. I just think, OK, well, I've got to prove them wrong. And so I just say yes to too many things. Uh, it's I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, I've got to work on that. So again, since we have some, I'm sure we have some young writers and not young writers in the room, but um, what words of wisdom? Yeah, do you old people. Have? <laughs> hey, what words of wisdom um, do you have for writers who are here and who are also going to be listening to the podcast and are struggling in one way or another? You know, for me, I always just try to remember that I love writing. I think that too many writers conflate writing and publishing, and they're two really different things. And publishing can be just very good, but it can also be very frustrating 
and um, very inscrutable. And you can't let that define who you are as a writer. You are going to encounter a lot of failure, but you have to just, it, it, you know, there's no easy answer. You just have to keep writing for you because you love it. And you can t take a step away from publishing, but I, I always encourage people to not take a step away from writing. And that's really the most wise thing I can say. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it sounded very wise. Oh, good. Um, I practiced it in the mirror this morning. <laughs> so as for remembering that love of writing and reading, do you have any touchstones, like any books even now that you're reading that help you to kind of remember why oh, yeah. you love it all so much? Uh, my two touchstones are Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence and um, The Little House in the Prairie books. Why, the, why those? Because I love them. <laughs> <laughs> They're the first books I really fell in love with. Um, I grew up in Nebraska, and it was just awesome to see that you could be an ordinary girl from the plains and live an extraordinary life. And so I read those books, and I thought, I'm going to be somebody. An ordinary girl from the plains living yes. an extraordinary life. Pretty much. Very well put. Um, I think we'll end with that question. And do we have a few minutes if people, um, we have a little bit of time left, if, if some people want to ask Roxanne um, a question about failure or success or something else. But I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to oh, do you're this. Welcome. It was really fun. And um, if you can, please go see Roxanne later today and the plethora of other things that she'll be doing, and especially at the Paul um, Engel Award tonight. Thanks, Roxanne. Thank you. So any questions? We have a mic if someone wants to yeah, ask. Shout them out. I'd like to hear about uh, your teaching and how that fits in with your writing life. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't. No. Yeah, I love teaching. I, I until this year I taught full time. I still I'm full time, but now I have a reduced course load because I can't do it all. And so, but teaching really, and teaching my undergraduates in particular, just keeps me invigorated because they're so strange and interesting, <laughs> and they're fearless. There's nothing they won't try. They really believe they can do anything, um, and that's infuriating. But it's also inspiring, and I'm not there to discourage. I really believe in teaching from a place of positivity, and so when they come into my classroom, I, I tell them, you guys are amazing writers, and so let's see what you can do with this amazingness. And they just encourage me in my own writing to take chances. Like, when I see the kinds of just crazy shit they come up with, I'm like, well, if this <laughs> guy can do this, and he's just like, yeah, I'm going to make it work then surely I can make it work. I mean, they, and it's so hilarious. I had this student last year who was like, yeah, I'm going to write a story about um, a series of Nazi scientists who created a, a fighting eagle <laughs> who was going to try and help the Axis forces win the war. It was so bizarre. But, I mean, he was a good boy. Good. I mean, he, he did Glee Club. He was just a really good kid. And it was just, he was so dark and in his writing. And I just thought, oh, Nico, mm, what's happening with you? Let's talk. It was, but he just wrote these amazing, amazing stories. And I just thought, okay, Roxanne, you can take a few more chances. because <laughs> This kid is just letting it all hang out. And it also just, it keeps me, um, it forces me to stay on top of what my peers are doing in the writing world. 
and it keeps me well read because I'm always looking for new fiction or essays, depending on the class I'm teaching, to put in front of my students. Roxanne, did you live in a small community in Nebraska? Did you grow up in a small community? And is that why the Wilder books seem, the Little House books seem to be particularly attractive to you? Oh, I think all communities in Nebraska are small. Uh, I grew up in West Omaha. So Omaha is the biggest city in uh, Nebraska. But we lived in a suburb and it was a very small place. There was a cornfield surrounding our neighborhood. And, you know, I just think it was that experience of being in the middle of nowhere, really, and recognizing the older I got. Just, wow, we really are in the middle. Um, But it was also the writing and just the stories. Laura Ingalls Wilder, I think, is a beautiful writer, and she captures place and moments so well. Like, to this day, I can still remember reading for the first time the paragraph where she talks about making candy in the snow with maple syrup. And that's, I mean, that's a great thing as a writer. I mean, I want to write things that people remember 40 years later. And so it was also that. I also, if I could add just the self-reliance of those books, you know, yeah. that like we we're a family and like we can do anything. Absolutely. And we're out here on our own. I mean, it makes living in Nebraska or Ohio like cool. It does. Know? I mean, it really just gave like sort of the Midwestern life a sense of purpose. And there was also romance, like Almanza Wilder, the way he courted Laura. Oh, <laughs> it was so romantic. He drove her home every weekend in his sleigh during the long winter. And just he and he he never tried to tame her. And <laughs> that's super sexy. I love him. Al- oh, I love Almanza Wilder. He's oh, I would marry him. And when you see pictures of him, he was a fox. Um, Since we're talking about Laura, um, I have been rereading the Laura books to my five-year-old daughter, um, and we're on by the uh, shores of Silver Lake right now, but there's a lot of racism. Mm -hmm. Like, Ma's an asshole. Mm -hmm. Like, she is horrible. And I guess I wonder, I I was talking to my mom about this, when she read the books to us, she skipped over parts, you know, Mm -hmm. so she didn't want to talk about it. You know, but like with my daughter, we've been talking about, I don't know, have you like in, in having those books be so important to you? Has that, um, how, how have you dealt with that? I think the world is a racist place. And I think context is everything. In the 1800s, white people were afraid of Indians and they demonized Indians. And I think that so long as you understand the context and that it is racist and that it's not like, oh, shucks. Look at Ma. No, Ma is an asshole, as you put it. Um, But yeah, I think those books were a product of their time. And I think it's completely unfair to judge them on contemporary standards. Uh, We can judge them, but to expect that the book should be thrown out. No, I don't think we can do that with great literature. I think we have to just face the racism and talk about it and say, yes, that was deeply racist. The portrayal of Native Americans in those books is appalling in every sense. There was one book where they talked about how they smelled. And I was like, what, do you really think you smell good? <laughs> Little pioneer girl? No. Um, you all don't even have indoor plumbing. What it, so, you know, we just have to, I, I see the racism exactly for what it is, but I still love the books. There was a question over there. Since you're kind of, uh, Talking about the Midwest, it made me think about geography in general. And if you 
I was wondering if you ever felt like you had to leave the Midwest in order to find success. Oh, God, no. No. Um, I've had all of my writing success from the Midwest. Uh, the majority of my work was published when I was living in Houghton, Michigan, and then in Charleston, Illinois, and now I live in Lafayette, Indiana. I will never live in New York, ever. I am about, to, I'm, I am, I actually just, I'm signing a lease on Monday the 17th for an apartment in L.A. I'm going to be splitting my time between Indiana and L.A. because I'm writing a movie and I have a TV show coming out, and so I need to be there. But I'm, I'm leaving the Midwest because, um, not for any need to have success, but because I'm tired of being black in the Midwest. You just get to a point where you're like, okay, I've had enough. Um, this summer, I was at a workshop with, with Alexander Chi, but also with another person named Kize Lehman, yes. who is a, an excellent essayist. And he posed a question for all of us that was in his group of what is the role of a literary figure today, a literary worker or a literary artist um, in the climate that we've created politically, economically with our military at this time? Is there an additional role in your life as a writer with all of the things that you're doing that you feel like you haven't quite addressed yet with your work that you still would like to? No, I don't. I think that, um, I think that we evolve and I think that I'm going to continue to find new things to care about as a writer, but I feel like my work is full of activism and is very proactive in terms of addressing social justice. So I'm very comfortable with what I've covered. Yeah, there are always costs. Um, you know, the, the level of harassment that I get is, mm, it, there are days when I'm just like, I quit. Like, it does make me want to quit. Um, and it, it's a shame because whenever you're a woman with an opinion, a hundred men want to tell you that your opinion is wrong and why exhaustively. And beyond that, there are the people who are just crazy and racist and xenophobic and homophobic. And so that, you know, it, it does wear you down. It does take its toll and it does make me publish less and it does make me think more before I write certain things. And I hate that. I hate feeling censored. Like I haven't written about Hillary Clinton yet and I'm going to, because I think more people need to be like, I am enthusiastically for Hillary Clinton because I absolutely am um, before the election, but I've put it off because I just know what a shit show it's going to be afterwards not with people who disagree. You can disagree. You can come talk to me about it. It's all good. But it depending on the kind of disagreement. Um, if you're like, oh, no, Trump is better. That's not a disagreement. That's a level of lunacy that I can't address. <laughs> but um, if people are like, but what about, you know, Hillary Clinton's past, which she does continue to reckon with and must continue to reckon with. We can talk about that. Uh, it's the people that are going to be like, you should die. <laughs> which <laughs> like okay really like it's that accelerated quite a bit and so that is really 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 hard and it just I don't like the way it makes me close myself off and hesitate um so that is absolutely a cost maybe one one last question okay and we can also talk about my husband Channing or my wife Beyonce <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way if you can get a chance to see her in formation oh go see gosh. her in formation it was so good. It was so good. And she waved at me. Like, n not in my fantasy. She waved at me. We were in the front row, Dodger Stadium. And I just lost my shit. And I was like, ah! <laughs> While she was performing. And she went, 
And I was like, ha ha! Anyway, that true story. I think Beyonce is a great note to go out on. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Thank you. For being here with us today. We really could have kept talking to Roxanne all day because she's really just that cool and that interesting, but we did have to let her actually leave the building. So uh, Roxanne's latest book, The Memoir Hunger, is currently on the New York Times bestseller list. We urge you to pick up a copy pronto. You can learn more about Roxanne her work and upcoming appearances at her website, RoxanneGay.com. And that is Roxanne with one N. Our thanks to Prairie Lights Bookstore for hosting the event, to the wonderful audience for their great questions, and to the Iowa City Book Festival and the UNESCO City of Literature for including us in their programming. And of course, all the thanks to Roxanne Gay. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Planzak and myself, with event production by Andrea Wilson. As ever, the failsafe is a joint effort of Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. I'm Rachel Yoder. Thanks for listening. <laughs>